Hello and welcome to the What in Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Dee Chobe, co-founder and CEO of Money Lion. Prior to starting Money Lion, Dee was an investment banker and worked at Barclays, Goldman Sachs and the Citigroup. He also served as a vice president at Citadel Securities. Dee holds a BA in economics with honors from the University of Chicago. Join us as we discuss Money Lion's mission of rewiring the American financial system, how to grow in B2B versus B2C financial services, building a culture of innovation in an organization and much more. I would also like to give a shout out to the third annual Wharton Fintech Conference scheduled for March 30th and 31st. Tickets are now live and you don't want to miss the opportunity to hear from and network with fintech leaders. This year's lineup includes guests from Craycroft, QED Investors, Ribbit, Visa, PayPal, Shrine, Ripple, and many more. Go to whartonfintechconference.com or check out our LinkedIn page to get tickets. Now on to today's episode. Eddie, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Tarun. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from uh, Moneyline's offices in New York City. All right, let's dive into the questions. For our listeners who may not be aware of your background, can you talk about what you did professionally and how you got involved in fintech? Sure. So, look, you know, I was uh, I took a pretty uh, you know traditional route at, uh, after college. I went to the University of Chicago, worked in uh, Wall Street for ten years. Um, you know, I had stints in the financial institutions group at uh, Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, worked at Citadel and really had a front row seat to the evolution of consumer finance through the throughout the 2000s, uh, through the LBO boom, through the credit crisis. And a lot of the learnings from the credit crisis, um, you know, were the foundations for starting Moneyline in 2013. And then, you know, uh, since then have really been, you know, building towards that mission of rewiring the financial system, uh, you know, almost 10 years into it now. Uh, and it's been an incredible journey. So what are the differences between leading a growing private company versus a public company? I asked this because you took money land public, right? So that yeah. must have been a transition. Yeah, look, I think in the private markets, um, you have uh, you have a lot of uh, degrees of freedom, right? You have to convince your venture capital investors about, um, you know, sort of your roadmap, your innovations, um, you know, how you're changing your industry or your sector. Um, but look, it's limited to a small universe of investors that you have to convince that you're on the right path. Um, in the public markets, you're building publicly. Uh, everything that you do uh, is public. Um, you know, your roadmaps are public. Your, um, you know, your successes and weaknesses are really tied to that quarterly and annual reporting cycle. Um, but at the same time, being a public company requires you to have a lot of discipline. It uh, really separates you know, um, the good companies and the bad, um, you know, in the short term, they all say that, you know, it's a voting machine in the long term, it's a weighing machine, right? So, um, you know, we're, we're just getting our seat legs under us as a public company, but it does drive, um, significant, um, requirements to be disciplined and actually have business models that work and that, uh, generate, uh, returns for stakeholders. Can you talk to us about money line and what the company does? Yeah, sure. So, look, you know, I think it's been an evolution, right? So, we've we've evolved significantly since we started the business in 2013, when we were using, um, you know, a very simple algorithm in analytics to provide cheaper, faster, more convenient uh, credit products to consumers that otherwise were 
we're not getting it from the money center bank. Um, you know, so historically we've, we've been known as really executing a neo bank, challenger bank, digital bank strategy. Um, it was always a platform. Uh, we provided banking, investing, uh, you know, advice, lending, credit, uh, and marketplace products through the neo bank. Um, but increasingly, you know, what we're super excited about is the enterprise side of the business. Um, you know, we've made two incredible acquisitions, one, one of a media company and one of a company called Even Financial, which is uh, an embedded marketplace. Um, so they power the internet in the sense that, you know, any publisher, um, think of CNBC.com, Fortune, Forbes, you know, Business Insider, all the way down to be able to provide financial products on their channels as publishers. So they can monetize the massive amounts of impressions that they're having. Um, by matching consumers to mortgages, insurance products, personal loans, credit cards, auto loans, uh, so on and so forth. So that enterprise side of the business where we're providing money line uh, on a B2B2C basis uh, is incredibly compelling. And it has a lot of synergies with the historical uh, neobank strategy in terms of uh, you know, the data compounds. We're able to use the existence of preference and intent on the network to improve recommendations on the consumer app. And we're able to, you know, give on a first-party basis. Uh, of course, the products that we build, but we understand that the American consumer has multiple financial inflection points, right? Nothing is ever static. Um, so now we don't have to build every single financial product. We can, uh, we can bring in the products of, of the network. Um, and what it does, really, from a strategic perspective, is we don't compete with anyone anymore, right? So, you know, a lot of times I get the question: Who are your competitors? Uh, is it SoFi? Is it Chime? Is it Dave? Is it Robinhood? Is it um, you know, is it, is it someone else? Um, you know, is it credit karma? And my answer now is categorically, we want to be working with all of them uh, because we're participants and we're, we're, we're running an exchange, we're running a network. And, um, you know, uh, everyone should be using that uh, exchange, if you will, uh, to monetize better uh, and to ultimately provide a uh, more robust set of financial products to the end consumer. Diving a bit more deeper into Moneyland's business, mm -hmm. right? Who are your main users or biggest users, key competitors, and what segments of the business drive most of your revenue? Sure. So, look, you know, I think uh, just like I said, the consumer business is about sixty-five percent of the revenue, um, and uh, you know that that's that, that's increasing significantly. Um, the, the the mix of the enterprise business is um, increasing significantly from a uh, user perspective, um, you know, the consumer business continues to drive uh, significant growth on direct-to-consumer acquisition. On the enterprise side, it's a two-sided marketplace. We have uh, 500 or more channel partners. So these are, you know, uh, publishers, these are websites, anyone who's got uh, eyeballs that they want to monetize is a, is a customer of Moneyline. And on the other side, we have 400 plus uh, product partners. So these are the largest fintechs in America. These are largest banks in America, insurance companies that are looking for leads to um, to, to, to really get their products into. Um, so it, it is incredibly diverse uh, in that sense. From a revenue perspective, it's fairly diversified, right? So on the consumer side, um, there's the whole neobank monetization strategy. There's interchange, there's transaction fees. Um, there's administrative fees that are embedded in there. You know, the, the model has always been to give free or low-cost uh, consumer finance products directly to consumers and then really rely on that engagement um, to, to, to monetize them through the marketplace strategy. On the enterprise side of the business, um, it's partly SaaS and it's partly a spread-based commission that we earn. 
Uh, and, and from a diversity perspective, uh, you know, we've, we've significantly diversified the way we make money over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, if you will. As being one of the rare organizations that does both B2B and B2C web, do you feel that the, the key to success in each of these segments is different? Yeah, look, 100%, right? So uh, for we, we acquired even financial in February this year. Uh, for the most part, we've allowed that business to run as a subsidiary. Um, the the go-to-markets are very different. The customers, of course, are very different. Um, but what's similar between uh, that part of our business and the direct-to-consumer side of the business is the uh, is that we have a similar uh, data DNA, a similar technology DNA, a similar analytics and AI DNA. Um, so what we do for one part of the business, we're able to use in the other part of the business synergistically to make the product better. Um, you know, we're able to all the product, all the data that's derived on the consumer side of the business, we can now commercialize that and give that as a service to our enterprise clients. Uh, all the intent and preferences that we see from uh, the consumer side, now we can share that with uh, folks on the network. So it makes the product better on the enterprise side. And for the consumer, uh, just by having every single financial product that's available in the United States available through the Moneyline app, um, become it really makes it the only money app that every American really needs, right? So it, it increases our ability to go and address larger segments of the population. It doesn't just have to be a certain uh, FICO band or a certain income band or a certain employment type. It can be uh, intentionally mass market because of the synergies of both sides of the business. On its website, Moneyland claims that it's the world's most innovative financial technology company. What drives this culture of innovation? And as the company has scaled, has this culture evolved? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question, right? So you know, oftentimes, you, you know, when companies go public, the slope of innovation changes. Um, you know, so what we are trying to do is uh, while we are taking significant costs out of the business, we continue to maintain a culture of experimentation, of federation. Uh, we have over 300 employees, um, you know, sit in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, so that hub of innovation, of engineering, of product excellence, of, of data, and, data and analytics uh, excellence, really um, allows us to continue experimentation. So we're already working on things that we'll bring to market in a year and two years. Form factor changes in how people think of searching for financial products. And then we have an amazing set of engineers here in the United States uh, that work on our enterprise side of the business, right? So they, the, the culture there uh, continues to be that of delivering success to our customers. Um, you know, and then innovation, right? It, it just, it starts from the top and it starts from, you know, we exist to disrupt and we exist to deliver that form factor change. So if we were just executing a neobank strategy, that's not really that interesting anymore. I think what's really interesting is using the data advantage and the compounding effects of the massive amounts of um, preference data that's being generated throughout our ecosystem and throughout our network to actually make a financial product search better. Uh, for instance, an example could be like, you know, you, if you can go to Google and search for a home, you get very static responses. Uh, if you come into a platform like Moneyline and you search for a home, we can contextualize that for exactly how much income you make. Uh, we can contextualize, contextualize it for the zip code or state or city that you live in. And then we can re really recommend ways to finance that uh, house purchase through a mortgage that you have a high likelihood of getting approved for, right? So that three-dimensionality um, to really how we're thinking about, um, you know, the, the form factor change is ultimately what gives us a lot of confidence and excitement that we're working on something special and we're working on innovative technology that's bringing together 
a media business, a consumer finance business, and a network and marketplace business. I know this is kind of off script, but yeah. do you feel that over the decade that you have been in the fintech space or the startup ecosystem, have things changed when it comes to hiring, uh, innovating, and do you feel that certain things have become easier were you to start Moneyland today as compared to a decade ago? Yeah, look, I, I think that all of those things go in cycles, right? So when we started uh, the business in, in New York, uh, San Francisco was decidedly the um, sort of the hub for tech talent in the United States. But, you know, really hiring people from the ground up to build what we have built probably took, uh, probably added a couple of years uh, of, of just execution. I think it's much easier now to start with a set of APIs. Um, you know, I remember when we were doing our own aggregation for bank transaction data, um, uh, right even before uh, the likes of Plaid and others were built. Um, so now, of course, uh, those APIs are much more mature. Um, there's a set of uh, you know very well trained technologists that have worked on fintech over uh, multiple different uh, you know kind of iterations. There are growth teams or marketing organizations that are that have been trained on digital acquisition. When we first started. Um, no one really knew how to advertise on Facebook, right? So now uh, that's evolved. Now really no one really knows what the, what the power of TikTok is. But again, those, those things come in cycles. Um, you know, hiring has, 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 has often oscillated, right? So it was cheap that it became really expensive and it became cheap again and now uh, it became expensive. And now, of course, with, with, with the drawdown of the markets, um, the opportunity really to consolidate excellent talent becomes an opportunity again. Uh, it's a great time to build. Uh, and it's a great time to start businesses just because the massive amount of incredible talent that, that are going to be looking to take advantage of the next cycle of growth and innovation. I'm glad you mentioned about hiring because the next question is, <laughs> is Moneyline hiring? If yes, what do you look for in potential colleagues? Yeah, look, you know, we're, we're always hiring. I think the uh, name of the game for, for fintech, tech, and just broadly in this market, uh, given that there's a lot of uncertainty in Q1 and Q2, um, on the state of the uh, on the state of the consumers, they have to be very careful about overhiring. Right, so there's a lot of stories out there where um, you know companies have become uh, a, a bit too um, too big, uh, some bloat in the system. So that's always healthy to kind of uh, right size the business equation, the business model. But that said, um, you know the best talent um, will always find homes. Um, and we're always looking to hire, you know, uh, the best talent um, to come and work for Moneyline. And what we look for, again, you know, similar to what you'll hear others say, is grit and perseverance, right? That, you know, folks that are problem solvers, uh, folks that can really um, think think outside of their swim lane, right? So if, if you come into a startup and, um, you know, you only want to work a certain way on a certain project and you want to be oblivious of everything else that's going around you by way of, um, you know, the corporate strategy or, you know, uh, sort of product innovation, then these types of businesses are probably not for you, right? You probably ought to look for, uh, you know, more traditional avenues, uh, you know, our employers, uh, Amazon and the like, and the Fang uh, and the like, maybe better places. But if, if you have grit and perseverance, uh, then places like Moneyline are incredible places to start a career and, and kind of learn incredible uh, skill sets, you know, uh, our our incredible employees always say that working at Moneyline is like getting a PhD in fintech because you get to work on um, digital banking, you get to work on 
managed investing. So you, you get exposed to the custody issues around, uh, you know, sort of the, the traditional uh, finance uh, world. You get to work on crypto and DeFi. You get to work on lending. You have to understand, uh, you know, ability to pay, willingness to pay, skill to pay. You have to work on operations. You get to work on a search engine. You get to work on content creation. You get to work on algorithms that uh, predict what consumers may want to buy next, right? So uh, all of that together create incredible, um, you know, crucibles for building a very well-rounded uh, strategic skill set. Um, so again, but at the same time, you know, it, it just it's not for everybody, and uh, I think there are going to be really op- real opportunities um, for folks to find, uh, you know, a, a lot of roles out there that that they give that so that they give that type of vantage point. Building on top of that, Moneyline was named in Forbes FinTech 50 in 2020. It went public last year. What's next for the rocket ship? And also, how are you navigating the current uncertainty in the market? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, this, this year has certainly been um, a, uh, a a pit stop on that uh, on that journey. Um, and it's been really humbling in a lot of ways, too, right? So, but we couldn't be more proud of uh, what we have built, right? So if you, if you look at, you know, when I started the business in 2013 to what it is now, when we took the company public, we were doing uh, just about just under $80 million a year of revenue. Um, we've uh, publicly stated that we'll do upwards of $320 million of revenue in 2022, right? So, um, you know, the revenue profile uh, is, is incredibly robust. It's incredibly, uh, you know, durable and diversified. Uh, as we think about the uncertainty uh, of Q1 and Q2, right now our focus really is to rationalize the business model so we can show our investors, the market, the stakeholders, that um, the assets that we have in this business categorically allow us to build a business that can have over a billion dollars of revenue. So how do we take you know, $320 million of revenue to over a billion dollars of revenue? How many new users do we need to add? How many new enterprise clients do we need to add or grow with to get to that revenue base? And we have clear line of, uh, clear path to getting there. And we have a clear path to profitability in the sense that, you know, uh, when we took Moneyline public, it was meant to be a venture-style growth company in the public markets. Um, given that the precipitous change in the interest rate regimes and the cost of capital, what you're forced to do is you're forced to um, really kind of uh, get to profitability faster. So over the next quarter or two, um, getting the business uh, to profitability is one of, one of, one of our uh, key rallying cries across the firm. Uh, we have all of the levers to be able to do it. We feel really excited about doing it because it's something to, to, to rally around as, as a team, as a global team. And it also uh, is healthy because you know we're forced to be highly focused uh, on delivering value to, to our clients. Because when we're delivering value to our clients, they're going um, the, the best recognition of that is that they pay you a fair margin on that value that you're creating, right? And just really rationalizing that on a day-to-day basis is what we are laser focused on. And that's how we're going to be navigating the uncertainty just by um, making sure that the, the 190 or so million dollars of cash that we have in our balance sheet is 100% sufficient to get us to not only profitability, but on the other side of this uncertainty with a very very robust balance sheet that's ready to accelerate growth, uh, potentially acquire things um, on the other side of this. Switching over to talking about the market overall, I would love to get a take on a couple of trends that you think will drive fintech industry's growth for the next two to three years. And where do you see Web3 slash crypto fitting into that equation? 
Yeah, look, I think that anything that um, doesn't have incredibly verifiable or incredibly transparent trust is going to uh, be a difficult place to be, right? So all of the, the new age crypto, um, the centralized coins that aren't passing the Howey test, where there's a foundation or an endowment that's making all the decisions about the coin are going to struggle, especially with what's happened over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, with, with the various exchanges and the uh, and with the fraud that occurred uh, on the FTX side um, that, that seemingly uh, everybody missed. Um, so, you know, that's going to certainly put um, a damper into things. It's going to have multiplier effects in the way we diligence investments, the way we uh, think about that technology. But that's not to say that um, there are parts of um, the blockchain industry, the, block, the parts of DeFi that are incredibly sound investments, that are incredibly uh, well positioned to be form factor changes in the way data is shared, uh, data privacy, of course, payments, of course, cross-border commerce. Um, so, you know, we continue to see that those as, um, you know, um, thriving areas. You know, as, as it relates to Moneyline, what we're super excited about is, um, you know, the compounding, um, you know, advantages of having a lot of data, right? So we have seen over 100 million U.S. consumers. Um, you know, we, we know their preferences. We have a lot of their transactions. To be able to triangulate, of course, with, you know, uh, with, with, with the consumer's permission, if we're able to uh, really play back to them uh, insights that are really scattered across multiple accounts for them or scattered across, you know, multiple platforms, um, we have the ability really to become that trusted advisor, that aggregator, that advisor, that content provider at the top. And then we monetize through either a new bank strategy or an impression strategy or a network strategy. Um, so really, you know, taking that data a lot, we've been talking about self-driving finance for many years, you know, money line, money line, we've, we've tried it. We've tried many machinations of it, but we finally think that we have the scale and the breadth of data to be able to fulfill on that mission. Um, so that's what we're going to be. Uh, that, that's a trend that we're really going to be pushing on the, the personalized commerce, the, the personalized advice, uh, all based on transaction data. And talking about the flip side of this question, any segments in fintech that you think are overhyped or bearish on in general? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that, like, like I was saying, there's certain parts of uh, DeFi. Um, if you're not able to verify uh, immutability, those sectors are going to have a very long nuclear winter here, if you will. Um, you know, I think that so 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 that 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 that's definitely a, a case. You know, I would also say just kind of taking bringing it back to more sort of the, the traditional finance uh, side of the world. Um, you know, I think that just winning on user interface or user experience is not enough anymore. Um, you know, I think you know five years ago, um, a money line or some of our, our fintech peers could just win the customer trust based on having a cooler app or having a much more easy experience, uh, funding account, making peer-to-peer -peer payments, investing. Now, I think the if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're just start doing a startup that's just uh, trying to win on uh, just the, the product side, that's going to be really tough. I think the uh, new age companies have to really rely, have to really kind of uh, double down on the form factor change. Are you able to meet customers where they are? Most Americans now are getting their financial advice on TikTok, right? Are you able to have a compelling value proposition 
and meeting the customers where they are as opposed to even bringing them to your website or to your app, right? So uh, the brand, the community, um, you know, are becoming incredibly important for uh, direct-to-consumer brand, direct-to-consumer fintechs to scale. Um, and we're seeing lots of people do really interesting and amazing things to build those communities. Um, and, you know, if we're, you're not able to do that, I think I'd be bearish on um, just starting a new trading app or a new crypto app or a new digital banking app. I think the vertical banks are going to be facing significant challenges as well. Because at the end of the day, you know, when you're running a near bank or a challenger bank, I think you have to actually run a bank. Uh, there's front costs, there's AML or KYC costs. Um, you know, there's uh, a significant operational uh, overhead that you have to employ to be able to make money on these digital banking businesses at scale. And then ultimately, the way you make margin is you have to either provide advice, which is which 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 are versions of wealth management, or you have to lend money, uh, which requires again a balance sheet, or requires operational capabilities. And you think of a money line, we we have a near decade of experience now. Um, you know, providing credit both on and off balance sheet on our own behalf, as well as on behalf of third parties. Um, so uh, th- those become uh, pretty high barriers to entry, but there's always, uh, you know, new entrants that will find new ways of doing things. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's never a blanket statement, but that's how, how, how I think of the world. Again, going a little off track here, but since you mentioned about challenger banks, I would love to get a perspective on incumbents or traditional banks launching digital services of their own, right? Or yeah. big tech players entering not into banking per se, but like buying operator or the fintech segments. What impact do you think this will have for players who are still young or, or incoming players in the market? Yeah, look, it's uh, if, you, if you are just a challenger bank or if you're just a buy now, pay later company, the existence of Chase, Capital One, City, Wells, uh, Apple, and Google uh, you have to be able to uh, you have to you have to be able to coexist with those with with, with your users having those accounts. Um, so we we made the strategic move a few years ago to be the interface layer. We actually don't mind if you have a Chase account or a Wells Fargo account. We don't always push our own direct deposit to the consumer. If you want to use a different bank account, God bless you. Right? We'll actually sometimes even tell consumers that hey. Bank X is offering, you know, $150 or $500 to do direct deposit. Uh, move it there for a week and then bring it back to us in a couple of weeks after you've earned your bonus or your bounty. Um, so you, the, the, the big banks do a good job, right? I mean, you, even if you go into your city app, uh, it's a good app, right? It, it, does, it, it does what it needs to do. Um, but where I think the big banks and the apples of the world stop is just at the transaction. They don't go into the interface layer. They don't uh, give you a full snapshot of how all of your accounts are, the covariance of all of your accounts working together towards a life goal. And that th- third dimensionality, the fourth dimensionality of, 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 uh, of what we're doing at Moneyline and what FinTech can do is the interesting way to, uh, to really compete with and thrive against the existing incumbents. Switching up gears and entering the last segment of the interview, what I'd like to do for this segment is introduce you more as a person, as, as an interviewer uh, to our listeners. And I have some rapid fire questions ready for that. My first question is, what's a fun fact about you? Most people don't know. Most people don't know this because I, I, I obfuscated. I hate eating salads. I was just telling that to someone right before this call. I, like, would you want a salad? It's like, that's the last thing I hate. That's the last thing I like eating. Uh, I've 
tried for many years to be healthy, but you know, I finally gave up and said, look, I'm going to just go with what I know and what I don't know is that, that I hate eating salads. Um, so for all the people that I've had lunch with over the years, uh, that's, that's something that you, you don't know about me. <laughs> How many FinTech apps do you have on your phone right now? And which one's your favorite app? I use them all. Um, and I have a lot of them. Uh, you know, I, I, Coinbase is, is I, I, I like a lot. Um, you know, of course I love Moneyline. I'm a super user on that. Um, but you know, uh, a lot of respect for, the amazing apps that are built out there. Um, a lot of respect for what uh, Square and Cash App have done. Um, so, If you had a time machine and you could go back in time, are there certain career decisions that you would change? Um, you know, I, th- I think, said another way, the, the, the advice I'd give to my younger self is just take more risk, right? I mean, this, uh, you know, we, we will look back at November 2022 as one of the best times uh, to start businesses, to uh, retool yourself, um, because there's a whole new wave of the cycle. That's that that that's the, the last cycle is ending, and the new cycle is beginning. Right. So, uh, if you if you're if you're always thinking that I need a one more year of experience at, a, at an investment bank, or I need two more years of experience at a big tech company, oftentimes. Um, you already have the experience. You, it's not about the experience. It's all about the grit and the perseverance that make you successful. So, uh, you know, th- th- that's what I would tell myself in 2008 or 2009, that instead of, you know, staying in, um, you know, a, a role um, that, that's, that's rote in nature because it's doing, you know, things that have been done for 50 years in just different ways over and over again, uh, believe in yourself and believe in your, your capabilities and give it a shot. Who is one entrepreneur or CEO that you really admire? Um, you know, look, I, I think it, it probably would have been very popular to say this person three to six months ago, and it's probably less popular to say now. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, Elon Musk continues to be someone who deserves a lot of praise. Um, you know, one may not agree with him for every decision or everything that he says out loud, but have the courage to make the hard uh, calls is ultimately the conviction you need to run successful businesses, right? So, if, if, for instance, if you're doing a layoff, if the objective isn't to get the free cash flow generative or to a state where, um, you know, you're profitable as a company, what's the point of doing that, right? So, uh, you know, the, the clarity of decision-making um, that, that he's had, um, it's oftentimes when you're an entrepreneur or CEO, you have decision paralysis because there's so many decisions to make. But having clarity of which, one, which decisions really move the slope of the business equation that make things work, that make things profitable, um, are the are the hard things to do. So you know, folks like him um, have, have, have certainly done it at uh, at scale and have done have done it multiple times. So I definitely admire the grit and the perseverance there. And my last question for you is: What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? And is there something they can do to position themselves or set the, set themselves up for success? Yeah, look, I think that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of trite things that you can say, but from a, from a practical perspective, um, just having a global worldview, right? I mean, it wasn't until the first quarter of this year that everybody started paying attention to interest rates, right? The iron law of interest rates were forgotten for 10 to 15 years. So having a worldview that spans your industry, but also where are we today as a society, um, have these patterns that we're seeing today, have they happened in the past? And just kind of being a, a student of, uh, of, 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 of sort of the evolution of business models 
really gives um, gives gives a leg up to any entrepreneur starting in any industry, right? Because you can always say, you know, why is my industry getting the capital that it's getting? What about um, interest rates or other uh, investment opportunities that exist or don't exist in the market today is allowing my company uh, to be worthy of getting capital and deploying capital, right? Um, so it's, it's a big privilege to take capital from you know uh, investors because they're getting capital from uh, somewhere as well. It, it could be a family office, it could be a pension fund, it could be you know a state, it could be you know private equity. So uh, you know, getting capital is actually a pretty big deal. Um, and having a uh, view in terms of why you're getting that capital, why you versus any other, uh, you know, kind of project or task, um, really allows you to make the right capital allocation decisions, the right decisions of focus on um, uh, which parts of your business you really want to that, that are worth doing, and some parts of the business that are worth uh, letting go. And it gives you clarity as well in your decision making. On that note, I'll let you go. But thank you so much for joining us, T. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walt in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Working Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Thank you.